welcome to season two of Dead Headspace. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Ghana, and all other major platforms, which now includes YouTube. Watch us or watch uh, any of your favorite episodes, including this one, by searching for Dead Headspace Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And returning guest host, Cassie Daly. Say hi, Cassie. Hello. And today we are talking with author, podcaster, and one of horror's biggest ambassadors, Brian Keane. Say hello, sir. Hello, sir. Now, I got a friend of the show, a friend of you as well, Brian, that wanted me to start this episode out with a very specific comment. That is uh, Mr. Gobino Iglesias. He wanted me to ask, well, actually, a question, not a comment. Why do you ruin everything? (laughs) <laughs> oh we just gonna get right into it then <laughs> fuck it he that's i guess he set me up <laughs> you know um if, if for listeners who haven't read uh my my sort of memoir end of the road gabino writes the introduction to it and he talks about uh am i allowed to curse on your show fuck no yeah okay. uh, all right yeah. He, he talks in the book about how he he was at a, a world horror convention in Austin, Texas that I was attending, and he was afraid to approach me all weekend because he enjoyed my books, but he had heard through the grapevine that I was an asshole. Um, so he didn't approach me, and, and uh, he waited until the next convention we were at in Portland, Oregon, and he caught me by myself, and he found out through the course of the weekend that, sure, I'm an asshole if you deserve it, but, you know... <laughs> I'm a nice guy. What do you, you know? What he's referring to there is, uh, you know, the, the there's a a certain subset of our industry. I guess there always has been. There probably always will be that think that people like myself or Nick Mamatas or now young Jedi Padawan Gabino uh, ruin everything. You know, by demanding things like you know equal pay and diversity in publishing and things like that. So uh, you know, fuck them. <laughs> Not Gabino, but fuck those people. <laughs> There's the last word. Wonderful. <laughs> Which leads me to an awkward segue of what got you into horror. <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, it's not as an awkward a segue as you might think. I mean, early on, as a, a, a little kid in the, the 70s, um, you ever watched that 70s show? You know, all the teenagers are partying, and sometimes you'd see the little kid in the background. That was me. I was that little kid. Um, you know, I early on, like age six, I discovered comic books. And uh, the ones I enjoyed the most were certainly horror. You know, stuff like Man-Thing, Swamp-Thing. Even Marvel superhero books like The Defenders, which ostensibly were were superheroes. But there was always a supernatural element to it. Um and from there, I, you know, I, I graduated very quickly to adult horror novels of the time. Uh, Stephen King's Salem's Lot. I read that when I think I was 11. Uh, you know, F. Paul Wilson's The Keep soon after. Uh, and it was the same with films. You know, The Omen, Jaws, Exorcist. Uh, you know, back then we didn't have DVD or VCR or streaming. So what you had to do is you had to lie to your mother. And say, I want to go see the new Disney movie. And then when she dropped you off, 
you know, there was always the teenager working the theater who you slipped him an extra dollar. He'd let you into the R-rated film. Um, but I just, I always was always attracted to, to monsters and the supernatural, etc. However, and here's the segue, you know, into what, what you mentioned and what we were talking about there a moment ago. As I got older, and I'd like to say I discovered this in high school, but I, I really don't think I discovered it till my 20s. Horror really speaks to the state of the world and the state of society in a way a lot of other genres don't. I mean, yes, you could say science fiction does. You could say historical fiction, literary fiction do. But horror can do it in ways that other genres can't. Um, you know, you look at, uh, I mentioned Stephen King's Salem's Lot. On, on the surface, it's a vampire novel. But if you examine it, it's really about the death of small town America, which was a, a hugely popular worry. And I don't, I don't want to say popular. It, it was a huge worry on the, on the shoulders of most Americans back then. Um, you look at Bentley Little's The Store. It's, it's all about the rise of superstores like Walmarts and, and what they do to towns and communities. I, I mean, horror has always been political. It's always been social. And uh, as an adult, I, I really like to celebrate those aspects of it. Uh, Brennan, why don't you jump in, bud? <laughs> I, I I think that's a that's a great answer as far as the social commentary and you know the one that springs to mind right off the bat and kind of has a little bit of pulled from the headlines is uh, the Dead Zone um, with oh, Greg yeah. Stilson and all that. Um, and it, it just allows you to kind of look at it, um, through a lens that you, you're not going to see in any other genre, um, to, to get an up close and honest look that adding a little bit of the exaggerated and the, uh, you know, hyperbolized macabre, um, gets you to the heart of the matter and i absolutely love that do you have any other favorites besides you know you mentioned bentley little you mentioned salem's lot that really kind of nail down a time period or something like that oh absolutely i mean we could go for four hours this evening uh <laughs> and, and poor cassie wouldn't get a word in edgewise because I, I would keep <laughs> going and going um you know you mentioned the dead zone and i mentioned salem's lot there's a lot of it in King's work from that era. I can't talk about what I'm working on, but I, I can say that I'm currently working on a project that has me revisiting all of the Castle Rock stuff set in the 70s and the 80s, like the short stories and the novels, etc. And uh, there's so much of it there. It's so rich with it. But uh, we mentioned the store. Uh, a lot of the stuff coming out now we you know we talked about gabino there at the beginning of the show his stuff is is full of it uh in the best possible way uh, you know nick mamatas who i mentioned earlier he always has something to say it's it's not just a fun monster novel uh but even the pulpsters you know my my dear departed friend jf gonzalez um you know he was he thought of himself as a pulp writer he wore those influences proudly on his sleeve as i do uh, but he also had something to say with, with that, you know, uh, you look at his novel, the corporation, which is, it, it predates the, the legal argument that corporations can, can qualify as people. If you remember that famous Supreme court case from a few years back, 
you know, Jesus's novel predates that, but speaks to that directly, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm going to kind of turn tack here a little bit. Now, you kind of find yourself in an interesting place in the history of horror where there are some people who are still working today and ronald kelly who we've had on a couple times um Love springs to mind yeah you know wonderful salt of the earth guy and a hell of a writer too yeah. um who you know they were influences on your work um and they're still active um you know, Pat mentioned in the intro that you're kind of an ambassador to horror. And one of, one of the kind of things that you do well is pulling from the people who kind of came before you and learning from them, but also, you know, building up the people who come after you. So I want to talk about the people who come before you. Who are some authors like Ronald Kelly who people in this genre maybe getting into this genre who don't know the indie side as well should really know oh god i mean again it'd be a five-hour show um <laughs> <laughs> i mean i i believe if if you're going particularly if you're going to be a writer but also if, if you're just a fan um you need to you need to know the history of the genre uh one of my nonfiction books, I'm not sure which one, uh, has an, an essay called Roots, where, where I wrote about this. Um, but, I mean, top five that were an influence on me and are still alive and working today that, that I think everyone should read because their, their thumbprint on this genre is huge uh, would be, I'm going to count them off so I make sure I don't go over five. Joe R. Lansdale, uh, Ronald Kelly. F. Paul Wilson, uh, Elizabeth Massey, and see, that's the problem with only limiting myself to five. Now I'm thinking, who's going to get mad at me if I don't mention them? John Skip. Uh, not that John would get mad at me, but just, I, I, what, I, what I did there is I tried to pick as wide and diverse uh, stylistically as wide and diverse a range as I could. Every one of those people writes very differently. They write very different books. Uh, you know, some of them are doing quiet horror. Some of them are, are, are doing splatterpunk. Um, but, you know, those are those are ones that had a direct influence on me, and I think everyone should be reading. So on the flip and side of... Oh, I'm sorry, oh, Brian. Sorry, Pat. Go ahead. I'll, ju I'll jump in real quick. But, you know, I all of authors and it, it's it's such a shame and maybe this is a comment on you know the way i came up looking at books but all of those authors were people i had never heard of uh three four years ago I, I had to go down a rabbit hole to kind of stumble across them and i feel like i'm playing this epic game of catch up and there's just so much incredible stuff out there for the you know the the student of uh, of horror fiction that really thought it all ended with with King Kuntz and uh, Rice, um, and you know especially with with Lansdale being such a prolific writer in multiple genres, you know F. Paul Wilson's body of work that's just you get lost in there. Um, I, I just you know to 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 be able to kind of look at those people who are still producing um, and 
you know, learn from them while you're seeing the writers, while you're reading the writers that they influence is it's a cool time to be discovering the genre, I think. I think so. And, and you know, your generation, I think, has it a lot tougher than mine did. Um, for us to discover new authors, it was just it was a trip to the bookstore and it was whatever, you know, Zebra and, you know, maybe Dell had out in paperback. And then, and of course, you know, the you'd always have the new King hardcover, et cetera. Um, and then, of course, you know, when my generation began writing, it was the same thing with with leisure and, and their horror line. But now, you know, with the collapse of the mass market and the growth of the indie market, um, there are so many horror authors now. And, you know, all those veterans are still in print and, and they're scrabbling to be heard amidst the crowd. And you've got all the, the my generation and the, the two generations of writers now behind us all getting published and, and scrambling to be heard in the crowd. And it's very easy for those authors to get lost amidst the din. Um, you know, and, and I think that might be part of the reason why I continue to, to champion so many of these authors like i had a uh, brian hodge on the 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 podcast uh shortly before we we pulled the plug on the horror show and and i'm so glad i did because brian is one of those authors that he he just he stuns me into silence when, when i talk to him he's so smart he knows so much about this craft and he's just so goddamn good um and you know i was aware that that you know, while myself and and others I know, friends I know, while we just celebrate his entire catalog, there's, you know, a whole section of the genre that's that's never read him. And, you know, it's important to me to, to champion authors like that. Uh, it can't just be about selling my own books. I, I do fine. Whether I go out and promote tomorrow or not, uh, my stuff sells well enough that I'm going to get a royalty check every month. So, you know, why not use my my bullhorn to sell other people's books is the way I look at it. I think that's really good. And I think that's something that a lot of more prominent people in the community, especially people who are more on social media like you and like Gabino are right now. Um, I see a lot of you guys trying to do that, trying to promote people and trying to like bring other people into the fold of your own success, which I think is really cool to see. Um as somebody who hasn't been reading this for a long time, like I don't, I just wrote down all of those people you said, because I hadn't read books by any of them. Yeah. So, um, and I'm, I, I know that as we go already, like we're only like 20 minutes into this and I have like half of a page written of stuff. Cause I always take notes. Like I feel like I'm in school when I do podcasts. Right. Um, and so, <clears throat> so I, I totally get what you're saying about the, um, you know, some of the, I don't know, quote unquote classic, not older classic, but like more older than recent um, authors and how important that is. But just for my own curiosity's sake, and also just for the sake of, you know, anybody listening, uh, what are, who are some of your favorite authors that you find really influential that are more recent or that have recently been published, like that some people maybe don't know of, or that even if people have heard of them, you're just like, wow, they're amazing. You need to read them. Um, Samantha Kolsnick. I mean, I, I don't know if the three of you read her debut novel, True Crime. Yeah, uh, we all that, love it. Yeah, we yeah, all. Love I it. mean, that was that was a game changer. Um, I I can't stress that enough. And you know, I like Samantha. I've had her to my house, and I I suspect 
she thinks I'm just saying nice things to say nice things. But Samantha, if you're listening, I'm I'm not bullshitting you. That novel was seismic. I mean, it it it. it I don't. I don't want to keep comparing it to Ketchum's The Girl Next Door uh, simply because I, I think true crime can stand on its own. But, you know, there was a, a moment in horror fiction when Jack Ketchum's Girl Next Door came out and you bought it at the drugstore or the bookstore and it, it had this terrible cover of this skeletal cheerleader. <laughs> it had nothing to do with yeah. the goddamn book. But, you know, you're 16 years old. You're going to buy that shit because there's a skeleton <laughs> cheerleader. But you read it. And if you've only been reading Dean Koontz and Anne Rice and Stephen King and, and Ronald Kelly, you know, it, and, and they're all great. But then you get to Ketchum's The Girl Next Door and it, it's it's like you've been bathed in acid. Uh, you know, it's just you it pushed the genre to places it had not yet gone. And, and I think true crime does the same thing. Uh, so she would definitely be at the top of my list. Uh, I... T. Stephen Kozanowski, uh, everyone knows that that I mentor him. Uh, but the reason I decided to start mentoring him is because I read his stuff. I really liked it. I thought he had a lot of talent. Um, you know, I, I thought he, like Jonathan Jans, I, I thought the two of them had the potential to break really big. Um, and, you know, maybe I could, I could guide them around some of the pitfalls. Uh, so, you know, those three, uh, Wiley Young, I really like. Uh, somebody on Twitter yesterday said he's like uh, the mutant love spawn of myself and Joe Lansdale. I'm not sure how Joe felt about that, but I got a good laugh out of it. <laughs> um, Chandler Morrison, uh, he, he's, he's, I guess he's probably thought of more as a bizarro writer. Uh, and, and his stuff does have surreal elements, uh, but it's also very much firmly set horror fiction. Um, you know, I, I think he's very subversive in his writing. Uh, you know, I expect good things from him as well. Uh, okay, my turn. <laughs> Sorry, it's hard to <laughs> hard to tell sometimes. Along those lines of newer authors, um, I I've listened as a student of this genre myself. I've as soon as the rock, what is it? The episode where you talked about cheesing. That's when I first discovered your. Podcast. So was that two years ago? Three years ago? Two years ago, yeah. Um, I bring you that were up. A latecomer then. <laughs> I was. Yeah, uh, I was. And I got I got, I dove into the deep end uh, as of that that year. So it was 2019. And um after that I just started listening to your older episodes and I was picking things up left and right. And I, I just I know how often you talk to people. And how much time you have and how much time you don't have. So my question, my longbow question is, um, how, how do you how do you say no to so many people and know who to say yes to, man? Like when you reach your point, I can you know, imagine like I was nervous to I'm sorry to cut you off. I was just going to say was I was kind of nervous to ask you to be on the show because I didn't want to be one of those people. No, that's a great question. Um, and honestly, Patrick, I don't know that I have a good answer. It's something I still struggle with. Uh, years ago, um, you know, cause when you start out as a writer, everybody thinks you're instantly wealthy and you're, you're not most writers in fact, never become wealthy. Um, you know, I, I make a comfortable 
blue collar living. On average, I pull in 60, 70,000 a year. Um, you know, probably a lot less than people think I make. Uh, but, you know, I live in rural Pennsylvania and you can live very comfortably in rural Pennsylvania on, on that amount of money. It's the same amount my buddies at the factories are making. Um, but I had a hard time realizing that I had achieved that. Uh, I was still thinking in terms of the writer who's trying to make it and is always chasing the next advance and the next royalty check. And uh, uh, several years back, I overcommitted. You know, I, I kept saying yes to every offer that came my way. And it got to the point where I just, I couldn't keep up with all the stuff I had. And I, I was talking with uh, another author who I admire and look up to, Norman Partridge. Um, and... <laughs> I was talking with him about it, and he, he says, I, I want you to do something. Do you have a, a post-it note there? And I said, yeah. I grabbed the pad of post-it notes, and he goes, I want you to write this down. And I said, okay. N-O. And I said, okay. He says, now stick it up above your computer. <laughs> um, you know, we talked at the beginning about people thinking I'm an asshole. Um, <laughs> I... I take that shit to heart sometimes. I, I do. Um, you know, nobody wants to be hated. Uh, so I, every time I have to say no, I worry about it. Uh, and as a result, I, I've just... I, I've gotten to the point where, you know, I, I'll, I'll give you a quick yes or a quick no once I see your email. It, it might take me days to answer your email. And that's not by design. It's just... I can't keep up, um, but I'll give you a quick yes or a quick no, and it's not personal, and I just, I have to assume that that people will understand that I'm busy, uh, and if they don't, then they'll, they'll, you know, they'll join the ranks of those who think I'm an asshole, and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, there's only so much you can do, you know, um, I, I'm 53 years old, you know, I, I have a, a 30-year-old son and a 12-year-old son and and trying to be a father to both of them and and those are two very different skill sets because they're two very different ages uh you know at, at the end of the day i i want to spend time with my partner mary san giovanni and i uh you know i i just i i can't be on all the time um i haven't given you a good answer because honestly patrick i'm still trying to figure it out myself but you know, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> what you do? Do you have a post, a post-it note there? I got a corkscrew board behind me with right. my. On the post screw board, right, right down N O. <laughs> Just tape it up there. <laughs> Just wrote it. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, Brian. and there's, there's been times I've missed out on doing things I would have really enjoyed doing. Simply because I get overwhelmed with email and messages, and then I fucking forget about it. Um, Ron Kelly had asked me to do something for him, and I would drag my balls across six miles of broken glass <laughs> for Ron Kelly. But he hit me up that. at a, you know, he hit me up at a time when I was literally just buried in stuff, and I forgot. And then he messaged me about it. He was kind enough to be patient, and he messaged me about it. I'm like, yes, I'm going to get on that this week. And then I fucking forgot again because I'm an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I was, 
you know what? Okay, I feel comfortable in saying this just because it's along the content of the conversation. But I would every time I emailed you, I was like, and I said something to Mary actually when we heard had her and Aaron on our season one finale. I said I'm gonna say something dumb, and Brian's gonna get pissed at me every time I send you an email. I was like, I know he's busy. I think he's gonna kill me one day. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, you only helped your case by adding the, uh, I, I forget what exactly the number is, but the average number of emails you get in the um, in one of the chapters in End of the Road, just to, you know, give us a working number of just how full your email inbox is on, on a daily basis. I, I can tell you what it is right now. Hang on, let me open the window. Um, my inbox, as of right now, 9.32 p.m. on January 15th, 2021, I have 2,000. 923 unread emails seven of those seven of those are spent yep i have one unread email and it's from myself because i had to send myself something from my (laughs) ipad (laughs) i am like so on top of it (laughs) there's like one person whose emails i read right away and that that's matt wildeson because i love matt i adore matt um you know uh and if if Matt Matt knows firsthand how busy I get, so if he emails me, I know it's it's something timely that needs responded to right away. Uh, the problem with that is now that everyone knows, I'll read Matt's right away. Everybody's going to be trying to go through Matt to get to me. Oh, Matt's <laughs> going to be pissed. Brian, what'd you do? I'm friends with him. He's got he's going to hate me now. <laughs> yeah, but my Mary and my mother. And my ex-wife, who I'm still very close to, the, the three of them, when they get together, uh, they they like to tease me um, because they'll be like, why didn't you tell us such and such? And I'll say, I, I put it on Twitter. And, you know, <laughs> and they're like, we shouldn't have to go to your Twitter to find out what's going on with you. But to me, that's just, that's the easiest way to communicate stuff like this, you know? Yeah, I, I could spend all day answering email and not get anything written, or I could take a minute to blast out a tweet and then get back to work. Yeah, uh, absolutely. That's super true. Um, just the the smallest taste of what you go through, and that's the best way I could word it, um, is when I started taking over a review platform last year. Oh, you fool. I, I don't do that anymore. I gave it up, man. But then I uh, also was trying to write, and that's around the time I was becoming a father for the first time. <laughs> uh, it stressed me out to the point where I was causing my wife stress. So I, I had to make some decisions, man. And uh, yeah, it's not easy. I can't imagine all that. Like, I get five emails. I have to keep up with those, and I'm just like, ah, fuck it. So I, yeah, I can't even begin to imagine what he, what that is like for you on a yeah. daily basis. Lots of weed, I imagine, helps. <laughs> Brennan, Not so much these days, but yeah, it used to be that. <laughs> Brian, I think you had a question. Yeah, yeah, Brian, this might be kind of a dead end question, but you know, you said yourself that nobody likes to say no to anything, you know, especially if it's for a friend or somebody you've worked with before that you know has helped you out in the past. But what? kind of advice would you have for somebody younger who you know when they're getting multiple offers it's uh their name is you know building their name is still on the line and they don't want to say no because they're afraid they'll miss opportunities in the future how do you 
how would you tell them to keep from, you know, getting in over their head and sinking? Well, I mean, back in the day, the method used to be you, if you wrote a short story, you submitted it to the highest paying market first. And then if they said no, you submitted it to the second highest paying market. And you, you kept doing that down the line until you got into the, the, the zines that were only paying you in a copy. Um, I think the same thing holds true today. You know, if, uh, let's take you, Brennan, let's say Gabino Iglesias puts out a, a call for an anthology, um, and it's going to be published by Tor Nightfire. So you're going to be in the bookstore. And uh, then you get an invite from, let's say, Deadite Press, you know, solid, reputable indie publisher. They want a story from you for one of their anthologies. And then you get a, an email from, Bill and Ted's horror website and YouTube channel that has five subscribers. Um, you know, you you pick and choose. You have time to write two of these stories. Which two are probably going to benefit you in the long run? You're going to go with Gabino and Deadite, right? And you're going to tell Bill and Ted, hey, I'm sorry, I can't do it right now. Uh, but come back to me in six months and hit me up and, and maybe we can do something. That way you're not closing the door on an opportunity you're just you're choosing wisely what to do with your time and that opportunity may still be there no it's not the bill and ted right no no <laughs> okay they'd have more than five subscribers i would i would guess just a fan page yeah <laughs> they could go back in time to get like the first page and then kind of monopolize from there cassie do you want to jump in we're kind of hogging the airtime. Um, no, I mean, I've taken a lot of notes, but I, I just think it's it's nice that you're real with the fact that they're even doing this for so long and even having as much experience and success as you have. You're like, I don't know, dude, like, I really just don't know sometimes <laughs> like and yeah, I think, that you know, it's true. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's all kinds of books on how to write. And and they're all full of wonderful advice, but there's not a lot of books out there on, you know, how to deal with the stuff that we're talking about here. And I'm not the one to write it because I haven't figured out how to deal with it all <laughs> Now, there is a question I had that I have not heard you elaborate on. Okay. Uh, you've mentioned um, that you you were in the Navy, but I'm curious why you joined. Was that because family, it was a family tradition or... <laughs> I've never heard you explain why. I, I joined because I was a dumbass. Uh, <laughs> no, I, uh, I was not the best student in high school. I, I was not National Honor Society. Uh, you know, if you've ever seen The Breakfast Club, I would, I would, I would have been the John Bender character. I wasn't <laughs> quite that bad, but, you know, I... Um, I, I there was no way I was going to get into college. My my dad worked uh, at the paper mill. My mom was a homemaker, and there was no way I was going to saddle them with the the financial burden of college. I didn't have the grades for it. Um, I knew that I wanted to be one of two things. I wanted to be a writer, or I wanted to be a DJ. And uh, a buddy of mine, my senior year, he he had signed up for the Navy, and he says to me, he says, "Come to this recruitment." recruitment meeting and and I get credit I'm like what do you do with the credit and he's like I don't know but I get credit 
And I'm like, well, I don't want to join the Navy. He's like, no, you don't have to join. I just need to get people to come to the recruitment meeting. So I, I show up and uh, the guy says, uh, well, what do you want to be? And I said, well, I want to be a writer or a DJ. And he said, oh, you want to be a DJ? You could be a radio man in the Navy. And, you know, I'm 17. I'm thinking radio man, radio, DJ. Yeah, that, that sounds right. <laughs> so I come home and I tell my parents, hey, I'm going to join the Navy. And because I'm 17, you need to sign for me. And, you know, we, yeah, we, we had a very military family. My dad was in Vietnam. Um, my grandfather flew over bombing raids over Japan during World War II. Uh, my favorite uncle, Uncle Hobie, uh, was there on the beach on D-Day. Uh, so, you know, and it wasn't wartime. It was, it was 1985. So, and my parents knew that I was a dumbass who wasn't going to go to college. Uh, so they're like, okay, yeah, if this is what you want to do. So I, I graduate high school and I go off to boot camp two weeks later. And a uh, couple weeks into boot camp, the company commander is this little Filipino dude, uh, Senior Chief Sugapong. I will, I will never forget him. He says, Keen, I see you joined to be a radio man. And I'm like, sir, yes, sir. I bet you thought you'd be disc jockey. Sir, yes, sir. Keen, you dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> that radio man had nothing to do with playing records on the radio. Uh, but, you know, I'm glad I did. Um, you know, I, I grew up uh, a blue-collar kid in a, a an uber-white small town in Pennsylvania in the 80s. And, you know, everything was... Protestant, every everything was, uh, you know, it, I'd say 70% of the people were into Reagan and the others were into the Union. And it, it was just every, everything was was set. And it was just this small worldview. Um, you know, I, I knew one black kid in high school and he was the only only guy in our town. Before that, the only black people I knew were, you know, in Marvel Comics or on Sesame Street. Mm. Um so joining the Navy, at, at, particularly at that age, I was exposed to to other cultures and other people and other religions and, and other ways of thinking about the world. Uh, you know, and when I came back home, I, I don't want to say that I felt superior to my friends, but it became very clear to me that they were still stuck with this very small worldview. And I had seen and experienced a lot and understood the world a lot better. And uh, I absolutely think it has informed my writing ever since. Um, it's informed how I, how I raise my sons. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm grateful. I hated the military. I, I, I do not do well with taking orders from other people. Um, I'm a bit of a disciplinary case, but I, I, I'm grateful for the time that I served. I I love the people I served with. They're my brothers. And, uh, you know, I, if I had to do it all over again, I would. Uh, but I, I wouldn't let either of my boys join. So, <laughs> <laughs> But you, you can't pay for that, that worldview. You know, like you said, it, you know, imagine Brian Keene stays in that small town and aspires to be a writer how different is your fiction going to be how how different is your nonfiction going to be with that skewed worldview that very narrow worldview um it's it, it, you can't even fathom 
Yeah, um, I mean, in, in four years' time, I was everywhere except Asia and Antarctica. Uh, you know, I, I was everywhere from the North Pole to Kenya to Israel, uh, you know, all over the place. We, we were even near Russia at one point. Um, you know, and it just, you know, I, I had never met a Muslim person. I, I didn't know what Buddhism was. I didn't know there were things you could be other than a Republican or a Democrat. I mean, you know, um, it, it's just it was an eye opener in so many ways. Was there an experience that stood out from the rest, what be it good or bad, while you were uh, literally traveling the world? Um, even back then, how Americans were viewed by other nations, uh, it was either with contempt and loathing, uh, you know, because they thought we were, were braggarts, and, and we probably were at that time, uh, or or they treated us like you know these adorable little kids who were still new to the world, <laughs> um, and the the levels of poverty and cruelty um, in, in some places. I, I remember uh, we were in Naples, Italy, for a couple weeks, and uh, I saw a level of poverty on some of those back streets that that I never saw. Up up until that point, I, I had never seen in America. Of course, since then, you know, I've been to cities all over America and I, I've seen it firsthand. But uh, you got a sense of, hey, America's pretty great. Uh, we're not as great as we say we are. We've, we've got some shit to work on, uh, but we're still pretty lucky to live here. That's fair. Uh, yeah. The worst poverty I've seen was when the border to cuba was open for americans uh, my wife brought me on a cruise for my 30th birthday and we went to havana for a day uh that that was an eye-opener for me man and i i, I kind of took away with i don't like my government a whole lot but these it's nothing compared to down there it's i i was i was in cuba uh in 1986 we were at gitmo mm. and uh you remember, I remember looking through the fence because you couldn't leave the base because the rest of it was Cuba. Yeah. And I remember looking through the fence. I'm like, you know, wow, it's so beautiful here. And and uh, this Marine that was stationed there, he's, he's like, yeah, you should see the rest of the country. It's a shoebox. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. It's like um, basically all the cars didn't go past uh, the 60s. Um, the government dictate, dictates pretty much everything. There was this... Uh, what do you call it? It was like a, a market, if you will, where everyone was, I have anxiety, but man, it went in overdrive because they were all, they knew we were Americans and like, I'm a big dude. I was clinging to my wife, man. I was, I was like, Tara, we got to get the fuck out of here. My head's about to explode. They're all like, come here. We got something for you. I I, I don't know. They all kind of viewed us as rich. I felt bad. I mean, but it's, yeah, we, it's, it's we weird. We would see that a lot. Uh, in Mexico, we saw it a lot. Um, Probably the worst case of that, we pulled into Kingston, Jamaica. And, you know, most Americans know Jamaica. They know the resort, Ocho Rios, and that's it. If Kingston is a very different area. And before we even pulled into the to the pier, there were little kids jumping off the dock, swimming up to this, this big giant-ass troop carrier, wanting us to throw coins down in the, the water for them. Um, 
which is super dangerous. They can get sucked into those propellers and, you know, turned into shark chum real quick. But yeah. but they do it all day, every day. That's that's how they get their money, you know. Well, yeah, I, I really don't know what to say. That's crazy. That's our, yeah. that's real life our right there. Um, I kind of wanted to jump to fatherhood because from the time, the two or three years that I've really dove into the horror community i've noticed there's been three guys on the top of my head and now this year well last year with ronald kelly um i i want to be you know if i can a full-time writer but i love being a family man and i see in here and you and jonathan jans uh joe r lansdale and ronald kelly that's what you guys are and i'm like it's possible because before i knew that other writers were like me and not just stephen king before twitter I was a lonely kid that wrote weird stories, and I I thought that they I was going to be an alcoholic writer because that's that was my perception of it. And I come from an Irish family, so I'm like, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> but first off, again, thank you for being a part of that because uh, it just instills in me a, a green writer at the time. I guess I still am, but um, it is important for me to see that. I'm sure it is for others. Cause there's other younger guys like me, like Brennan, he's, he's a father and a writer. We both kind of want to get, uh, give it our best and, you know, be there for our kids. But my question is, is, uh, with the podcast, with end of the road, it all kind of leads to this question is there's more time for your family now, I imagine. So what's that like, man? Like compared to when you were overloaded with work? Oh, it's great. Um, I mean, you know, it, it took a long time to achieve that level of security where, okay, I don't have to release a new book every four months. I can sit back. I can relax. I have a, a sizable backlist of stuff already in print that's going to continue to generate income. Um you know, it's great to be able to sit back and relax. Um, you know, my, uh, you know, I, I, I've got a great relationship with my 12 year old. Now he's starting to become a teenager. Um, and you know, he's, he's starting to, to fight back on a few things, you know, he, things he thinks he should be allowed to watch that he's not allowed to watch yet and stuff, but you know, we have a great relationship. Um, it's, it's nice to be able at the end of the day, just turn off my phone, not have to sit there and think about recording a podcast and just sit down with Mary and, and the two of us chill and talk about our day and talk about things. Um, but it took a long time to achieve that. And, you know, I always think back to to Joe Lansdale. I mean, you know, he's. He's this this huge success story, I mean, you know. Not just not just the books, but you know, with movies and television and and everything else. But you know, Joe, when he was starting out, he was literally writing with with Casey and Keith, his two children, on his knee. You know, balancing them on his knee in a typewriter. Um, I think it comes down to if you're serious about writing, you have to seriously treat it like a second job. Um, and it just it comes down to finding a schedule that works for you and sticking to it. And, and you know, you go to your day job and then you come home and you devote eight hours to the day job. Maybe you devote, you know, 
four hours to the family and then when they all go to sleep you devote an hour to writing and then you go to bed or you get up early an hour before everybody and you devote that time um make sure your partner or your spouse understands that you're serious about it that this is something you want to do um but also understand the sacrifice your spouse or partner are making in giving you that time and make sure you're paying them back for that by by giving them time as well it's a balancing act um but i think if you treat it treat it as a you know a second job um i think you can make your peace with it yeah i I love that answer brian And, and honestly the biggest reason i like it is because when we asked you you know how to um balance commitments and how to deal with you know requests take on things your answer was geez i'm not sure but when we asked you you know how to put family first you didn't hesitate for a damn minute um and i i think that's just a pretty cool way to go about it i mean you know i wish i wish i could toot my horn but the the truth is i learned that lesson the hard way uh you know my my ex-wife cassandra uh we got married before I before I broke big, uh, you know, I, I was a writer when she met me and, and I started getting published while we were dating. Um, but, you know, after a couple years of marriage, when when I really started to take off, uh, I would literally sit out in my office 12, sometimes 14 hours a day and write. Um, and I, I thought. Because, again, I'm a dumbass. That seems to be the takeaway from this episode. Brian Keene is a dumbass. <laughs> um, I thought I was doing the right thing. You know, I grew up watching my dad go to work, you know, seven days a week, shift work at the paper mill. And when he wasn't working, he was down at the union hall, you know, helping out with the union. And he was always working. And, you know, busting his ass to provide for the family. And I, I grew up very much with that mindset. You know, I, I've got to work. Got to work hard. And writing doesn't seem like you're working hard. So, well, if I do it long enough every day, it's just like I was at the paper mill. Um, but what what I didn't understand until after we got divorced was, you know, Cassandra was sitting there in the house by herself while her husband was out there lost in his own head. And when I would stop for the day and come in, I didn't want to talk because I just spent 14 hours writing about terrible people and terrible things. I don't, I don't want to talk about that. I had, I had no energy left at the end of every day to, to give to her. Um, and we got divorced and, and rightly so, uh, you know, and, and we're both much happier and healthier people today as a result. And our, our son is super happy. Um, but yeah, it's a lesson I learned the hard way. It's a lesson I don't repeat with Mary. Um, it helps that Mary is also a writer. She's been doing this as long as I've had, I have, she's successful as well. Um, you know, and we've known each other since we both started out. So, um, you know, we, we can approach it a little differently and, you know, it's nice to be able to do that, but yeah, at, at the end of the day, look, we, we get in this business and, especially with social media we're friends with everybody and everybody's getting along and you know we're all one big tribe and i i know i preach it too but at the end of the day man it's it's 
it's not your fellow writers and it, it, it's not the people you talk to online. It's, it's the people who are there in the home with you after you log off. That's who's got to come first. Yeah, very, very well put. Um, so you mentioned that when you start out, you know, you might devote an hour a day at the end of the day or in the morning. And, you know, it, it kind of varies depending on what's going on, you know, how, how I guess, seriously you're taking it and how much of your job writing becomes. I want to talk a little bit about your writing process and um, I want to I want to talk about something you posted recently and if you don't want to go down this road just say the word but okay. you you made a tweet that said that you tend to write every day whether it's scribbling a paragraph in a notebook because you're on the road or while you're whether you're sitting down for 14 hours except for you noted two days September 12th 2001 and January 7th about a week yep. ago I wonder if you could talk to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean it's it's true. I uh my dear departed friend Tom Piccarilli, he used to say that, you know, if you're stranded on a desert island and you start writing stories in the sand with a stick, then you're a writer. And and what he meant by that is, you know, those of us who are compelled to write. Um I'm I'm one of those people. I write every day. I'm miserable. If I don't get a chance to write, Mary will tell you she can't stand to be around me if I haven't had a chance to write. Um, but yeah, the the day after 9-11, um, you know, I I couldn't write that day. Uh, I don't know anybody other than maybe Joe. Lan- I think Joe Lansdale said he wrote the day after, but I, I I'm thinking back. I I don't know anybody else who wrote the day after that. Um, for one reason, so many authors and editors and agents, etc., in the, in in our industry live and work in New York. And at that time, the internet was still in its infancy, so we didn't know right away that everyone was okay. It wasn't like there was a Facebook where you could check in and say, "Hey, I'm okay." Um, yeah, I remember my editor at Leisure at the time. I knew he took the train into New York, and he got off in the station beneath the World Trade Center. I knew he would have been getting off about the time the plane hit. Um, and I didn't hear from him until the next day. Um, so, yeah, there, there was that. And, you know, now most recently with uh, with this insurrection at the Capitol, and look, we're not going to get into politics here. Um, I think people know my politics. I'm, I'm a, I consider myself a, an independent. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fairly moderate i guess you would say i i don't i you know i'm i'm a little bit liberal uh i'm certainly not a a far left progressive but i'm certainly more liberal than i'm certainly not a conservative let's put it that way uh but whatever your politics are let's call it what it was it was a coup attempt um it was a poorly executed coup attempt and thank cthulhu for that but it was a fucking coup attempt uh uh, you know, yeah, I couldn't write the day after that because, you know, people think, uh, you know, we elected somebody else and they're going to get in office and, and wave a magic wand and all of this is going to go away. But it's not, uh, you know, terrorism didn't go away after 9-11. And, and what we're looking at now isn't going to go away after 
January 21st. And, uh, you know, as a father, that scares the piss out of me. I, I was thinking about this the other day. When I, was a, when I was a kid, you know, the original Mad Max movies were a big thing. And, and Snake Plissken from Escape from New York. And we would go outside and we would pretend we were Mad Max and Snake Plissken. And we'd talk about how cool it would be to, to live in that sort of dystopian society. Of course, as an adult, you realize, no, that would not be cool. Uh, but the other day, my 12-year-old my and author Summer Cannon's son, who's like his best buddy, uh, the two of them were, were talking online. And later I said, what were you guys talking about? We were talking about how cool it would be to be Mad Max or to live in the world of Fallout, the video game. I'm like, yeah, I remember being that age. <laughs> but then we had a talk about why it would not be cool. Um, you know, I'm... I'm terrified for the future, not so much of the country, but uh, more immediately for his future and for Summer Cannon's son's future and for all the other kids their age I know. Um, you know, the genie's out of the bottle, and I, I don't know how we put it in, uh, but I know how I'm going to deal with it by writing horror fiction, and that brings us back to what we said at the beginning. Horror is always social. It's always political. Um, you're going to see... Everything from these last four years showing up in horror. You're seeing it already showing up in horror. Um, I would argue it, it showed up beforehand. I, people don't realize I wrote City of the Dead in 2004, and the, the main antagonist in that was Donald Trump. I changed the name to Darren Ramsey, but he was, he was Donald Trump. <laughs> he was a real estate developer tycoon from New York City. <laughs> Brian, Brian Keene just admitted that he is the writer for The Simpsons. <laughs> real quick because i was going to mention it city of the dead i see it uh, behind you um i my wife told me of this new uh this not new but a used bookstore that she goes by uh, at her new work and i i was like we gotta go so i went i looked no horror section but i found uh i'm not even saying this because it's you on the show i found one horror book it was city of the dead by you so obviously i bought it but where did the they have me shelved if they didn't have a horror section? It was in like the weird, just like general fiction section. Yeah. Um, hey, that, I'm moving up in the world then. I'll take that. <laughs> I asked the guy if he's going to have a horror section. He's like, eh, I don't know, maybe. But we got like, I'm in South Jersey. We got like, you know, Mar Mary and you and Todd Keeslin, uh, Tim, Tim Meyer. I'm like, there's a lot of local talent here and he goes yeah i'll think about it so that conversation ended quickly <laughs> <laughs> um cassie i don't want to cut you off if you have a question uh, um, go ahead and ask okay yeah so i this is the part where i just kind of just selfishly asked questions that i'm very curious about um so i know that from what you just said it doesn't sound like you have very many of these days or maybe you do and you just push through it um what do you do or how do you handle it when you just or maybe you just never have this, but when you feel like you just can't write something or like when you you're just like your brain won't allow you to think and you just stare at the page and it's just like the and then that's it. Like that's all you can get. Like, would you count that as a writing day or would you just force yourself somehow? No, I'm not going to count thus. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you sit there for long enough, maybe it's 14 hours of the <laughs> uh, I. I always I always use this analogy, Cassie. I used to work in a foundry. Um, when I first got out of the Navy, I, I had a job in a foundry. Um, I had to make like 200 molds a day. 
or I didn't get a paycheck at the end of the week. Um, so I always approach writing by I try to do X amount of words per day or I'm not going to get a paycheck, you know, at the end of the month. I'm not going to get a royalty check. Um, I'm not saying they have to be your best words. OK, you can you can write total shit if you want, because you can always go. The beauty of writing is you can always go back the next day and look at what you wrote and say, yeah, that was total shit. I'm going to rewrite it and make it better. But at least you've written something, at least you've produced. It's like uh, if you're making a, a a clay pot, you know, that that first draft is just the wet clay on the wheel and it doesn't have shape and form yet. So, you know, if you force yourself to write beyond the. Then your your pot kind of has shape. OK, and then when you come back later and revise it. Now it actually looks like a pot. And then, you know, that final draft, you slap the glaze on, throw it in the kiln, and hey, you've got a pot. Um, yeah, there are absolutely days. There are a lot of days where I, I type the, and then I stare at it. Um, you know, there are a lot of days where I would much rather be on the Xbox. I'd much rather be out in the woods. I'd much rather be playing Minecraft or Roblox with my kid. Or, you know, talking music with my oldest kid, but, you know, I still got to work. Um, so I just I just forced myself through it um, with the agreement with myself that it might not be my best work. Um, another trick. This is one Richard Lehman taught me. Uh, he actually writes about it in his book, A Writer's Tale, if, if you can ever find a copy of that. Um, when I end for the day. I end in the middle of a sentence. Okay. And then when I come back the next day, I read what I wrote the day before. And when I get to that, that sentence, it's like a cliffhanger and I'm back in the story and I know where I want to go. Um, a lot of times that will get you beyond that empty space following the, the, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think that makes so, a lot of sense. And that's, yeah, that's not how so obviously, like I've only been doing this for like a few months, so I'm not anywhere near the rest of you. But like when I was doing it, I'd be like, oh, good. Like I finished this chapter and then I would go back like I don't do it every day, but I would go back like a week or two later and then I'd be confused. And I'm like, where did I where was I going to like what was going to happen here? Like what's going on? Where am I in my own thing? And I'd have to reread like the first five chapters just to figure out where I was. And it was that's normal. It was is it yeah, that's okay? Normal. That's you're, good you're doing to know. It right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, do you count? Uh, so, when you're going back and revising, like if you were to go back and you're like, "Oh, everything I wrote yesterday was shit, except for maybe a couple of lines," like, and then you rewrite all of that, would you? Would that be a day of writing, or does revising yeah. count separately? Okay. No, that I think that counts. I I absolutely think that counts because you're still producing, you're still doing work, you're still throwing wet clay on the on the wheel and forming it and shaping it. You know what I mean? Good. That's yep. good. I'm sitting here another, taking notes. <laughs> another trick that uh, Brennan suggested <clears throat> was one from you, excuse me, where when you, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, if you don't know like the correct details on something. George Washington. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Because <laughs> one, one day, Brent, long story short, Brennan and I wrote a book together. It's in the first draft stage, but he said, Let's go with that because there's stuff that we don't know. And I'm like, fuck it. Okay. So <laughs> that works. <laughs> yeah. I, I do that. You know, I'm a, 
I am very bad at hopping on the internet real quick to do some research for a paragraph. And then, you know, two hours later, I'm on Twitter. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> uh, so, so if I don't know something, like, let's say, let's say my protagonist is a big fan of the show Supernatural or they like K-pop. And, you know, I'm a 53-year-old dude. I, I don't know shit about K-pop. Um, <laughs> instead of, instead of breaking the momentum and going and, and researching it, I just type in all caps, bold all caps, George Washington. Okay. And then when I when I come back to do revisions, I'm like, oh, that's right. I need to go research K-pop and actually find out what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> and the beauty of it is if I miss a George Washington, my pre-readers catch it. <laughs> hey. And I've had that happen, you know. <laughs> Unless you write about George Washington, that is not gonna get confusing. Yeah, so it go. would stand out. Um now we're almost an hour in, and we haven't even touched on. For, well, we talked briefly, but we haven't dove Hang into. On. While you're asking, I want to text Mary, who's downstairs, and ask her to bring me an iced tea. Now it's a fifty-fifty that she'll bring me an iced tea because her phone might be muted, but we'll see. <laughs> so you might get a, a guest special appearance by her. We love Mary, <laughs> so that'd be amazing. It's good. I love her too. <laughs> you probably love her more. So <laughs> that's fair. All right, that's been texted. Now, now we'll see. I was going to ask you, uh, I'd like to dive in a little bit of End of the Road. And um, I don't say this lightheartedly. I feel like I've read an, uh, you know, a fair amount of the books on the craft and whatnot. I flat out said that End of the Road is my writing uh, Bible. For how you feel about Dick Lehman's A Writer's Tale, this is how I feel about your book, uh, End of the Road. Reason being is because it just, it breaks it down. It's like, hey kid, here's what I did. If you want to actually do this, it's a little bit different, but at the end of the day, you sit your ass down and you actually write. It, yeah. You have a lot of interesting stories and <laughs> I don't know. I just, I, I kind of chuckled to myself. I'm like, I bet I would react a little upset too if I had that many fucking emails. But the funniest, <laughs> funny story without ruining it the Flintstones, that bit cracked me up. Brent <laughs> and I were texting each other about that. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm here to tell you, I mean, you know, yeah, I'm a writer. Of course, I tend to exaggerate for comedic effect. Um, but that Flintstone story, 100% true. No exaggeration. I mean, all of that happened exactly the way it was written down. <laughs> Brent, Brent, Brendan, why don't you jump in? Because uh, I want to hear what you have to say about End of the Road to Brian. I, I mean, I, I loved the I, – I was texting Pat before I got to – I think it was when in one of the later chapters um, you were talking about trying to visit um, the childhood home of Hunter S. Thompson and wondering why the hell it's not a national landmark. Right. Um, and, and I saw so much of, you know, his his style in End of the Road. It just – it. And I guess, you know, anybody who is, has an interest in journalism and pursues it in any limited or like major capacity is probably going to list him as an influence. So I shouldn't be surprised, but I thought I'd, it was a nice payoff for me when we got there. I said, yes, you know, he does know his. Uh, oh, yeah, know I'm, his I'm a I'm a huge Thompson devotee. Uh, I mean, you know, he's not horror, so so I don't get a chance to talk about him a lot, but uh, he, he's probably my favorite author of all time. Um, you know, of course, Nick Mamatas and I 
several years ago, we wrote a novel called The Damned Highway, which was basically supposed to be the the lost chapters of Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail. And it, it's it's Hunter S. Thompson versus Cthulhu is, is what the novel is. Um, and the estate never sued us for it. So, you know, we got away with it. But yeah, I'm I'm a huge Thompson devotee of, of all the voices that we've lost, you know, Prince and David Bowie and, and Lemmy and, and, and so many other. I think uh, the loss of his voice is the one that hits me the most because, boy, we could really use him right now with everything that's going on in America and in the world. He he had a way he wasn't always polite about it, but he had a way of cutting through the bullshit and just, you know, exposing things for what they were. One in particular is uh, you <laughs> said if you saw these two proud boy douchebags that he would he would pretty much put them in their place. Yeah, I, you know, that, that enraged me. You're talking about the, the news article this week. The Proud Boys have, have taken up Hunter S. Thompson as like their, their patron saint. And and clearly they've never read Hunter S. Thompson. You know, maybe they saw Fear and Loathing with Johnny Depp, but that's it. That, that That's the base of their knowledge. Um, you know, he loathed racists. He hated them more than the Blues Brothers. Hate Illinois Nazis, you know. Uh <laughs> Yeah, that's how old I am. I'm making Blues Brothers references, but <laughs> it's a good movie. It just, it it yeah, it just it enraged. You <laughs> you said that you know that he's one of your favorite writers, and I can I can completely get on board with that. You know, anybody who Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is a great book, and The Curse of Lono and all that. But anybody who could his his articles are every bit as engaging and enthralling as you know your wildest fantasy book. Um, and you know to to make um, you know I I wasn't born in 1972, but the the Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, like that book had my attention for the entire runtime. And, you know, we said that we could use his voice today. Like the, just every time that he, you know, rattles off a description of Nixon, it's, it's hilarious. You know, you just, you want a supercut of every adjective laden description of Nixon that he ever used. It's, it's just wild yep. stuff. Yep. There was an article I read yesterday, uh, Jack Kirby's boy. I don't remember his name on the top of my head. Don't know if any of you Neil. read it. Yeah, okay, it's Neil. Yeah, he was uh, really disgruntled about seeing his father's, uh, his father's probably best-known character, Captain America, uh, just on, <laughs> this is as political as I get in this episode, just on, like, Nazis, uh, wearing them as shirts with Trump as Captain America or just the shield itself. And he said, my dad wouldn't have felt more angry about anything than this. So it's, it's real interesting how idiots can turn such an awesome thing into uh, something you just shake your head at. Well, exactly. I mean, look, I, you know, I, I think uh, fans who follow me on social media know that, I have a deep affinity for the character of Tony Soprano on, on the Sopranos. Um, because I get at, at its core that that character is, is stuck between two worlds, his job and his family. And what were we talking about in the first hour? It, it was all about being stuck between your job and your family. Um, that's why I love that character. But I, just because I have, 
such a deep affinity for Tony Soprano doesn't mean I'm going to go out and start an organized crime family and <laughs> and murder people and you know uh, have all these gumars and, you know and, and I I don't understand and and listeners I'm not talking about Republicans or conservatives I'm I'm talking specifically about you know racist white supremacists I I don't understand them adopting characters like Captain America and and the Punisher for, you know, as their, their totems. Yeah. The, yeah. the Punisher would gun them down in a heartbeat. Yeah. <laughs> you got a guest. Oh. You got your tea. Oh, Mary San Giovanni joining us Hi. 15 minutes after I placed the order. <laughs> <laughs> That's fast service in some places. You don't know. Where's your tip? You got a tip. This is why your service was slow. Um, oh, Cassie, you put me on the spot here. I don't look. I do deliveries. You know I gotta be. What? I gotta be. Speak up for the tips. What's the restaurant where if, if you're happy with the service, you ring the bell when you leave? Is it Arby's? <laughs> Bye, Mary. Bye. Love Bye. you. What the hell were we talking about? I know Tony Soprano. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> we were certainly talking about how, you know, one of the most famous Captain America covers of all time oh, yeah, is yeah. punching Hitler. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, you know, and I've, I've been a Captain America fan since I discovered comics. It was the first comic book I ever bought was Jack Kirby, Captain America issue 195, where it was... It was an ongoing plot line where he was trying to stop a coup from within the U.S. government. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so. Holy shit. I find it really interesting that uh, a lot of writers that I like fell into comic books first. I personally never did, and I don't have a dislike for them. I just – I was more of, like, into films pretty much as a, as a kid, comedy or horror myself. But uh, someone else I can think of um, – that is super famous, uh, George R. R. Martin, and he said that he wrote as a kid to Stan Lee and actually had his letter published. Uh, I'm I'm wondering what it is about comics that draws so many writers into that world before books. I think part of it, part of it, is a generational thing. I was talking about this with uh, I can't remember if it was Wesley Southard. Or Mike Lombardo. And it just occurred to me when when Cassie asked me in the first hour about new authors that I really enjoy, I didn't mention Wes. And he's at home crying right now. If he's still listening, <laughs> he may have turned the podcast off when he found out I didn't mention. But Wes is certainly on that list as well. But it was him or Mike Lombardo I was talking to. And, you know, for for my generation growing up, we didn't have goosebumps. You know, we had the fucking Hardy Boys, which were lame as shit. Uh, but, you know, we if you wanted to play video games, you had to go to the arcade. Yeah, maybe a couple years later you got an Atari. But but comic books were were really the one thing we had access to. You know, now you have Goosebumps. You have video games readily available. You have a million things to watch on YouTube. It, it's just like we were talking before about not knowing all these horror writers. It's, there's so much choice now. But back then, comics comics were the one thing we all had easy access to. You didn't have to go to a special comic book store. They were everywhere. They were on drug stores, grocery stores, everywhere. Um, and 
they were very subversive. They were marketed at children, but the storylines were very adult. Uh, you know, they weren't being written, particularly at Marvel, they weren't being written for children at all. Uh, but our parents weren't paying attention, so nobody knew that. Um, you know, I, I think comics itself as, as an art form, it is it is a very unique medium. Um, it's part film and part prose. And you can do things on a comic book page that you cannot duplicate on film and you cannot duplicate it in prose. Uh, so it, it's a it's its very own hybrid art form. And, you know, that's what I love about it. It literally comics is is the one medium where you can do anything. Film will always have its restrictions. Prose is always going to have its its restrictions. Not so with comics. And, and you know, my to my mind, part of it is I don't know if nostalgia is the right word, but like you said, it was marketed towards kids and you grew up on it. You could get it everywhere. And I would argue that they're not marketed towards kids anymore. I mean, first of all, what kid can afford a single issue of comics? Yeah. Um, How much and, do they go for? Uh, five like, bucks, typically. Yeah. Oh, that's a lot for, for a kid. And then if yeah. you have like a special, like one of the annuals or one of the special, like where they have multiple characters that are combining for a new like spinoff arc, it can be like $7.99 for a single comic. Exactly. It's wild. And then if you, um, so like I, I have, I collect comics, so I have a ton of comics in my house. <laughs> um, and I, uh, there have been times I'm ashamed to admit in the past, not recently because uh, 2020 was hell, but before that, um, where a comic would come out and then I would buy the main comic. And then I was like, oh, okay, my, like some of my favorite comic artists are doing variant covers. And then I have to get the variant covers, which are additional money. Like I've, some variants are so expensive y'all. Like it's wild oh. how much these things cost. Like, um, it's, oh, sorry. That was a little tangent about the price of comics, but whoa, man, it is wild. No, and you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. Um, I, you know, I always gauge cultural interest in things based on my kid and his friends. Um, and my kid loves to collect comics. He collects uh, Simpsons, he collects SpongeBob, and he collects Mad Magazine. In fact, this week, he and I went to the comic store. Our local comic store is nice enough that they let us come in when nobody else is in the shop, so we don't have to worry about COVID. Uh, this week, he bought a Mad Magazine that's a year older than I am, um, you know, with his own money. Uh, but he has he and his friends have zero interest in current Marvel or DC comics. Now they watch the cartoons, they watch the movies, they play the video games, um, but the actual comics that are being produced, they they they've got no interest in. It. And I I I I think part of it, you know, uh, like you said, it's the price. And I and I think the other part of it, like you said, is that that they're not being written for that age group. You know, you go and see uh, what was the what was the animated Spider-Man movie into the Spider-Verse. He came out of that, loved it, loved it. He was all about Miles Morales the way I was all about Peter Parker when I was his age. And I said, let's go to the comic book store. I'm going to buy you a Miles Morales comic book. And I thought, this is it. This is going to be the gateway drug. He read the comic and he's like, eh. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean, eh? And and he he said I could identify with the kid in the movie. I don't know who this guy is. <laughs> and I, I think he hit it the nail on the head right there. You know, I don't know that modern 
modern Marvel and DC should be written by a bunch of uh, 50-year-old white dudes. And and I, I realize I'm one of the 50-year-old white dudes writing them. And I'm not going to say no because, you know, I like money. But, <laughs> but I, I, I really think they, they need younger creators who have a deep sense of the history of the company and the characters working on these things, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't know if the it's it's a main issue, but it, it feels like to me like there's too much going on at any given time. It's like you 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 can't just go pick up the latest issue of Captain America. There's you know fifty different spinoffs and thirty different writers writing those spinoffs, and it's just it, it gets really overwhelming really quickly. Um, and this is just in the superhero realm. Um, there's certainly a lot of other good work going into comics. The the in fact the only um issue by issue series that i've bought recently is uh before covid hit i was keeping up with uh all the i can't remember the name of the series but the series that joe hill had coming out um Lock through dc no oh, not lock and key yeah, okay. the, um, was it the basket full of heads one it, that was one of them but there was like five different series written by authors and he was writing two of them i think but um one of my favorite ones uh, he wasn't involved with was uh, the Low Low Woods. That was a really, really cool one. There was some good stuff in there. Um, you know, one one of the comics he was doing for that, he needed to know what it was like to fire a Civil War cannon. And I was actually I was actually setting that up for us last year. Uh, I have a reenactor friend in Gettysburg who has an actual working cannon. <laughs> um, unfortunately, then COVID happened and we weren't able to make that happen, but... How, how, <laughs> just a little aside. That's crazy. No, um, go ahead, Brian. Sorry, I no, I for, I I I forget. Continue. <laughs> I'll, I'll go back. Pat, are you going to say something about comics? Yeah, I was oh, okay. just going to ask, how the hell do they keep the history together? I was going to ask also if they have a team of Bev uh, Bev Vincent's because <laughs> that's what you'll need. They used to. And now I remember what I was going to say. It was, so we're going to put your question on hold, Patrick, because first I have a story to tell that's not in End of the Road. Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, you're talking about, and Cassie, you mentioned it earlier, too, all the spinoffs when they do these big events. Remember when they, quote, unquote, killed Captain America? Yes. Okay. By, uh, I was yeah, writing yeah. Devil Slayer for Marvel at the time, and my main character and all the other protagonists are a bunch of American GIs serving in Iraq, okay? It's it's the middle of the Iraq war, and my cast is primarily American soldiers. Don't you think they would react to the death of this patriotic symbol back home? So I wanted to include not even a whole issue. I wanted to include three panels where they talk about the death of Captain America and what it means to them fighting in Iraq. And I was told no, because they, it was too late to pitch it as an official Death of Captain America tie-in. That, that's how they think. <laughs> it's, wow. That seems it's about right. It's not so much edit, editors. It's marketing people making these decisions. Mm. Um, but, now, Brennan, what, what, was, what did you say? Because I was, what was your question? <laughs> It's I don't know if I even had a question. The only thing that running through my head right now is uh, I love that Brubaker run on uh, on Captain America. Oh, from was... from the first issue to the very last one he wrote, I I thought that was some of the best stuff the character had to offer. Brubaker's fantastic. Mm. Patrick, what did you ask? Do you remember? 
I made a joke, but I was also being serious. Bev Vincent, for those that don't oh, know. Yes. Yes. Okay, now I remember. You know, they actually they used to. Uh, Marvel and DC both used to have huge libraries of bound issues where an editor could go back and, and check, oh, we did that. That happened in Amazing Spider-Man issue 176. Um, and you would think with with digital technology, it'd be even easier to do that. But they've gotten away from that. Um, they They hire assistant editors who are absolutely overworked and overwhelmed. Uh, it's it's like they hire them and then they throw them in the deep end of the pool and uh, they don't have fact checkers anymore. And particularly at D.C., you see that about every two years now they have to do some big company wide event yeah. to service all these continuity errors. Which just makes more. <laughs> or they just wipe them away and retcon everything and they're like oh suddenly none of this actually happened just kidding yeah. it's brand new yeah <laughs> yeah you know i thought marvel missed a, a big opportunity a couple of years ago they they did uh secret wars not the original one from when i was a teenager but the the new one in which dr doom basically destroys everything all of reality and, and creates his own reality and i thought man what a perfect opportunity to hit a complete and total reset button and, you know, you wrap up the continuity. That's where the original Marvel Universe ends for all you old people. And now here's a new one for today's generation, starting with issue ones. And they didn't. And I, I think that's a I think history will show that was a huge blunder on their part. I could see that. And, you know, it's it's almost I hate to throw out the word embarrassing, but with how big the Marvel movies are, how much money those make, the fact that they're not selling more comics to that like young teenage demographic like that that's embarrassing i oh, can't yeah. think I, of a better word <laughs> the uh the girl that that works at my post office you know she loves telling her friends i wrote thor and and they're like oh yeah which movie that that's <laughs> that's what they immediately go to <laughs> well no he didn't do you know chris hemsworth brian <laughs> have He's you guys a um hunk <laughs> Have any of you guys watched WandaVision that just came out today on Not Disney Plus? Oh, it's Not so good, we're, please. We're Go doing watch that. Watch that. We're right doing that tonight. The... Good. Yeah. yeah, only I didn't know that it, they weren't going to release the whole thing, so I'm not used to Disney Plus doing like I just watched stuff on Netflix, so I'm used to it all being bingeable. So when I saw there were only two episodes, I was immediately like I woke up this morning going WandaVision and then I saw two episodes like, "Oh, crap. Like there's only two." Um, but it's really good and I really liked the I won't spoil anything, of course, but just from the pictures you've seen like the black and white and i really like that nod to like the old tv stuff it's like my favorite tv i loved it i'm so excited i i i want you guys to watch it um but okay so aside from that since nobody else has i i will say that i really like the um something you said a little bit ago was that comics and graphic novels and those things kind of blend those different formats in a way that you would not get without that blend um right. i think that a lot of people um especially I, I don't want to say especially in, in horror because it's just that's the one that I'm most involved in the community. Um, but a lot of people I've seen kind of look down on the format or look down on stories that are told through that sort of medium, um, viewing it as like geared towards kids or, you know, juvenile. Um, so I think it's really, really important what you're saying to kind of give credence to that the importance of it as a medium and as its own thing, because it's very different. Like you couldn't do that with movies. You couldn't do that with just books. Um, Absolutely. Um, you know, you go back and look at Alan Moore's Watchmen, um, yeah. I mean, you know, to, to pull, pull a classic example, uh, 
there's tricks they do with the art and the text uh, that I, I really enjoyed the Watchmen television series on the HBO, but it it wasn't anything compared to that graphic novel. There, there's things they did in that graphic novel that cannot be duplicated, it, you know, and it certainly wasn't duplicated in Zack Snyder's adaptation. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to the the Moon Knight TV series. Moon Knight is one of my favorite Marvel characters. He's one that nobody ever knows. Him and Perk I know Hayes him. Are. I'm raising my um, hand here because I'm excited for that. <laughs> yeah, you know, and uh, 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 Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead announced that they're going to be directing some episodes. Those guys are great. You talk about two ambassadors of the genre. Uh, you know, they love this genre, and uh, it's nice to see them getting a big break like that. Um, but, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that a lot. That was nice because, you know, at, at this point, we all know that Marvel could throw whatever directors they want on that and people will watch it and people will subscribe to Disney Plus uh, to see Oscar Isaac. Um, but to put a creative team on it like that shows that they're really they they care about getting it right. Uh, they oh, care about. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the same with, uh, you know, my friends, Scott Derrickson and C. Robert Cargill, um, you know, when they got Doctor Strange now. Now, yeah. You know, they were known in horror circles, but they certainly weren't the names that they've become now. And, you know, I, I know that since then Scott has fallen out with Marvel, but the, the fact that Marvel was willing to give them that shot with the original Doctor Strange, it, it was it was a, a huge moment in their careers and their personal lives as well. You know, such a good movie, too, man. It was so different. Yep. Uh, one of the ones I'm looking forward to is Nia DaCosta on Captain Marvel 2. Um, and granted, you know, none of us have seen that new Candyman movie yet, but uh, for amazing. her to land that gig, um, that obviously there's something about that that people are liking. Can I can I make a confession, an exclusive for your podcast? Sure. Yes. <laughs> I did not care for the Captain Marvel movie. And I want to clarify, I'm not one of these, these meathead incel motherfuckers who are angry because you know I, I don't even understand why they hate Brie Larson I think she's a fine actress but I just I I, I I just I never even as a kid the Cree and the Skrulls I, no keep me on earth <laughs> I don't, so I you know I'm hoping the second one maybe they'll, they'll bring in some villains that I dig and, and I'll dig it more uh, but yeah, Thor Dark World and Captain Marvel. Th those are the two Marvel movies that fell flat for me. Sir, so. for exclusives by Brian Keene, you have to get Mary to come in and say... Doo -doo 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 -doo. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a question about your podcast. Now, you did it for six or seven years. Do you miss it at any point in time in your... Ever? Do you ever miss it? I do not. Um, you know, I... I had toyed with the idea of ending it before we ended it, but I hadn't just, you know, I, it hadn't crystallized. I hadn't pulled the trigger on it. Um, I wasn't expecting to end it when we did, but I'm glad we ended it when we did. Uh, I have so much more time to devote back to writing, devote back to family. Uh, you know, the, the podcast had gotten to the point where, I was working on it four or five days a week, particularly when, you know, it was a really serious news story. Um, 
You know, I, I, I don't. I, I think people thought I just turned on the microphone and talked shit. No, you know, for the an hours an hours episode, it was two, three, four days of research, making sure I got the facts right, making sure who would go on record, who wouldn't go on record. Uh, you know, saving saving these emails, running things by the attorney, and saying, "Can I say this? Can I get sued if I say this? No, you gotta you gotta say it like this." It was a lot of work. And uh, I wasn't enjoying it anymore. If it got to the point where I could just do what we're doing now, mm. you know, where I interview a, a new writer or a veteran writer who I'm, I admire or I, I tell a story about my time in the business that maybe will enlighten people, I'd still be doing it. Um, but we set ourselves up as a new pod, as a news podcast and People were depending on us for that. So we had no choice but to do that. And it just it just got to be too overwhelming, you know. Um, what I what I love is that since ending it, I'm seeing you you guys and so many others are stepping in to fill that void. And now instead of just, you know, one source, there's multiple sources. And I love that. If if that's my legacy, then I'm fine with it. <laughs> Your show for me is the show uh, that kind of just clicked and it felt right. It makes sense. I'm happy for you because you're obviously happier. But I love your show. I love This Is Horror. I have a, you know, I like other newer shows like Ink Heist. There's one, uh, Does the Dog Die in This with Glenn Parker? And there, what's the other one? Curse Morsels. Derek mm. Raglan. There's so many others. Blaze of Horror Fright is one of them. Um, but it is. <laughs> It is interesting. I was going to get to that at the end of the show. All right. So, <laughs> I was trying to rush me. No, I'm kidding. Uh, there is one dedicated to Christopher Pike, which I was going to. Look. It didn't right sound here. like was, you were going to. It really did. No, at right? the end of the show, when we're talking about. Okay, whatever. <laughs> I love you. There is Pike. another new show called The Pike Cast with Cassie Daly and two co hosts, <laughs> Cooper Beckett and Becca Fortrell. So. What if you take over? So I stopped digging a hole with friends. <laughs> so I, I mean, I don't. I certainly don't want to downplay the news angle because some of the stories that you you guys covered on there as a group and gave you know the very unbiased look at pre presenting facts as facts and opinions as opinion and opinions. Um, that's you know you had the mouthpiece to do that and you had the uh reputation that people would listen to you but what i really one thing i really take away from the show is the snapshots in time um interviews with authors at certain points and of course the one that really sticks out to me um is the jack ketchum interview but yeah. i, I I wonder if there's any other snapshots throughout that, you know, interviews with authors at certain times that you're always going to remember and you're going to go back and revisit. I mean, that one will always come first. Um, you know, what folks don't know, uh, he, he had asked me specifically, he said, are, are you bringing your recording gear to the convention? And I said, yeah, why? You want to do an interview? And he, he's like, yeah, I need, he said, I need to do one. Um, and I knew he was sick. You know, he, he'd been fighting the cancer off and on multiple times. Uh, but I hadn't seen him that year up until that point. And 
when I saw him, it, it was clear he was he was pretty sick. And, uh, you know, we, we sat down there in the hotel room and uh, just me and him and Michael Bailey. And, you know, uh, we we did not say it to each other, but we both knew, OK, this may, in fact, be his last interview. Let's talk about stuff he wants to talk about, things that people haven't asked him. You know, stuff like, uh, you know, the, the Norman Mailer collection and, and, and connection and the fact that he used to be an agent, you know, for uh, Philip K. Dick. Um, you know, most people didn't know that. Uh, you know, he got a chance to tell his his Paul McCartney story, which just, just still makes me laugh to this day. Um, you know, uh, he, he for those for your listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, he used to tutor Lady Gaga. Uh, her father owned his favorite neighborhood bar. It's a bar that I have drank in as well. In fact, they had my 43rd birthday there in that bar, uh, which which he helped organize. But uh, when Lady Gaga made it big, she plays Madison Square Garden, and her father is there in the special box, and Ketchum is there in the box with them, and the big jumbotron comes on, and Lady Gaga's parents and the the audience stands up and you know thunderous applause and then he stands up and waves thunderous applause and he said you know I felt like Paul McCartney in that moment um, you know so his is always always going to be my top uh, you know but there there are a lot of a lot of other good ones on there um, I I think some of my I think probably my favorite episode is the first time we had Mary on. It's in season one. It's fairly early in the show. We were still recording it in the kitchen. We were still dealing with the meth heads who would come up. Um, and people thought they were plants, like they were actors. No, they were legit meth heads. <laughs> uh, but the first time we had Mary on, it's me and Mary and Dave. And, you know, I had I had gotten divorced and Mary and I had dated for a bit and, uh, you know, we weren't so sure that, you know, these two best friends who are now dating and they're writers in the same field, we weren't sure if it was going to work or not. So we 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 had taken some time off and uh, we were just being friends. And, and I hadn't talked to her in a while. And she shows up, you know, for the for the interview. And uh, I mean, yeah, it was immediate. It was like, you idiot. This is your soulmate. What the what the fuck is wrong with you? Um, you know. For once, you got to let somebody in, Brian. Quit being a dumbass. Uh, <laughs> but you can hear it in that interview. Uh, Dave pointed it out to me, and I went back and listened, and sure enough, he's right. And it's it's like the line from The Office, when the Office finale, when, when Jim Halpert says to the documentary crew, imagine if you could go through your life and, and watch the moment you know this is the one. That podcast is it. I mean, you can you can hear Mary and I over the course of that interview realizing, yeah, we're we're supposed to be together. We're meant to be together. Um, so yeah, that one is always going to stand out as well. You talked about that on one of your last the last season's episodes, and uh, something else you pointed out was you and your you could go back in time and hear you and your son grow and. I haven't stopped thinking about that. My boy is only one. He hasn't even talked yet. I have not stopped thinking about that, about, well, what's going to happen with me and, you know, uh, Philip? Um, 
I hope I got what you got with him. Your boy is very smart, man. He might be smarter than you. Don't oh, he's, he's way <laughs> Don't <smart>. hurt me. <laughs> he's way smarter than I am. Um, no, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm proud of both of my both of my sons. I love them both. I'm proud of them both. Uh, but little man, you know, every parent feels that their child is special. But I'm telling you, he's here. For something special. I don't know what it's going to be. Uh, maybe he'll cure cancer. Maybe he'll just make a really good YouTube video. You know, because that's his passion right now. Uh, Plug but, him, Dad. Plug him. You know, I he's... he's His mother and I have talked. In, in many ways, he's an old soul. Um, you know... Uh, you know, there's this theory in reincarnation that you, you eventually... You, you achieve... Uh, a level of universal knowledge and and i'm not so sure i believe that but man sometimes when he says things or his insight into things i look at him and i'm like maybe that's true you know (laughs) um yeah yeah i'm I'm super proud of him and it, it is neat to go back to the early episodes of the podcast when he's little i think he was yeah he was six years old you know, that first season and, and then, you know, the end season there, you know, he, he's, he's not a little kid anymore. He's a, he's a young man. And it's, it's neat to have that. And it's always neat. Every time we had Christian Jensen on, yeah. um, cause you know, the, the Christian's final appearance, when he infamously offers little man, the, the whiskey and little man goes for it. I have to put a stop to it. Um, you know, contrast that with Christian's very first appearance and, you know, he's six years old and he comes barging into the studio and berates him for five minutes about cursing. <laughs> you know, there are children in this house, sir. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, it's, he, uh, we were watching, I was over at his mother's house the other night and she's watching this show on Amazon Prime called, uh, The Mentalist. And, uh, I wasn't really paying attention. And uh, our our friend Pruitt Taylor Vitz has a, a recurring role in the show, and he I hear him go, "Hey, it's Pruitt," you know, like, "Hey, it's you know one of Dad's friends." Just, just he's he's had a neat life. He's had some neat experiences. His his favorite YouTuber in the world, uh, this guy that does uh, Minecraft videos, exploding TNT, you know, tweeted him a happy birthday message. Um, you know, Casey Lansdale covered Pat Benatar's hit me with your best shot based on his recommendation and gave him a shout out, you know, uh, during the recording, um, you know, comic artists have drawn pages for him and given him things. And, you know, it's gratifying to have a job where he can have those experiences, but it's even more gratifying to see that he truly gets that not all of his buddies get to have that experience and he and he's genuinely grateful to have things like that so it's cool that's cool that's amazing and and when he answers questions i don't even do this as a 32 year old man he thinks about what he's gonna say before oh, yeah. he said he you can hear his his gears turning his calculations going off man and it, that's why i personally think he's a very smart young man he did um, not get that from me. He got that from me. <laughs> I had two more things about the podcast, uh, uh, if, you, if you don't mind. Um, 
just one uh, observation. So I, I listened, not to every single episode, but a lot of them from the first one to the last. But I noticed that there was this really neat, uh, there's a few relationships that you could see grow. One was with Dave. He's your brother. And you could see that. You could hear, well, rather hear that. And it was different when he wasn't there. And as a listener, it was a bummer, but I still loved hearing your new episodes. And then when you added Mary and, and Matt to it, it just, it felt like a family. Um, yep. So I'm, I'm bringing all this up, not for the sake of us to just talk about it, but I urge listeners to listen to it. For me, it's, this is a show and Ink Heist is another show that uh, had a big influence on me. So if you like my show, watch those the um, or listen to those. The other thing I wanted to talk about, I'm so happy you had Jed Shepard on for one of your last episodes. He's great. He's one of the coolest guys ever. I, the the first message I sent him was like, "Hey, do you think you could come on my show?" And he's like, "Yeah." And he brought Haley Bishop and uh, Emma Louise Webb, two actresses from Host. And I'm like, he he told us like five minutes before he, he was supposed to be on with us, and he's just one of the coolest guys ever. He interviewed Doug Bradley. I'm like, he he's not a bitch. He's <laughs> he's a fucking pinhead. So I'm I'm curious. Is there I don't know how sass is, for lack of a better way to phrase it. Is there, like, a friendship there between you two? Because it seems like there is. Who, me and Jed? Yeah. Um, I don't, yeah, I mean, we're friendly. I don't know that I could say we're we're friends because we've never hung out in person. Mm. Uh, you know, I only got to meet him last year. Uh, but, yeah, I think we definitely hit it off. And I think when COVID is over, uh, you know, I, I've been promising all of my friends over in the UK that I'd get over there and visit because it's been too damn long. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure I will hang out with him at some point. He's just, he's, he's a great guy. Yeah. He's a great guy. I like him a lot. Uh, I like his energy. I like his spirit and you know, he's genuine. Yeah. And that guy loves VHS horror fil- films more than anyone. I know. Um, <laughs> him and Rob Savage, they got, I don't know if I'm sure, you know, but they got a three film uh, deal with Bloomhouse. That's, yep. that's, that's huge. Yep. That is huge. And it's nice to see that. It's nice. To, it gives hope to the little guy. Well, and it's nice when it's people like them yeah. who are succeeding, you know, it, because and I'm not going to name names, but I can think of so many people in this business in my 25 years doing this that were just complete and total ass clowns and, and did not deserve it. Hmm. Um, so it's nice when, when people like Jed and Rob, you know, get that success be, because the, it's nice to see the nice guys win for a change, you know? Yeah. Uh, Brennan, uh, all you, my man. Oh, okay. So, Brian, usually when we're kind of starting to wrap up, we want to talk to people about what they're reading right now or if they've read anything recently that they want to kind of shout out to the masses. But um, I- I'm thinking about an article I read from uh, the professor yesterday. She put out this great article about women in horror month and you know more aptly about celebrating it year round making sure that you don't just relegate your reading of lady authors to february so i'm wondering who are 
some, I think I can probably think of one at least, but who are some women authors that people need to check out in your opinion? All right. Um, I'm pausing because I'm, I'm trying to do what I did at the beginning. I'm trying to cover <laughs> all the different subgenres and a mix of both new and, and veterans. Um, you know, we mentioned Samantha Kolsnick earlier, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Definitely, if you have if you have the fortitude for it, check out True Crime. With the disclaimer, it's not for everybody. Uh, it, it is a sucker, a repeated sucker punch to the gut. Um, Christine Morgan. People don't talk about Christine Morgan enough. Uh, as as far as I'm concerned, she is the current queen of extreme horror. Uh, but. The thing is, she doesn't just write extreme horror. She's having enormous success as an extreme horror writer. Uh, but, you know, she's written fantasy stuff. Uh, she's written historical stuff. Uh, she's written Bizarro. Um, and, and there's a, a vein of very sweet humor that runs through much of her work that I, I don't think she gets enough credit for. Uh, you know, Christine's great. Um... I mentioned Elizabeth Massey earlier, and, and I would encourage people to track down her backlist. You know, Elizabeth came into this genre at a time when it, it was still very much a, you know, a, a male-dominated industry. And uh, I don't know that she would classify her stuff as splatterpunk, but it, it was certainly hard-hitting. Um, and... She really stood out at that time simply for the fact that, you know, she was writing stuff that that like Ketchum and Lee and Lehman were writing. She was one of the, the few female authors to do that. Um, but what's what's what really fascinates me about Elizabeth, I don't. I don't think she has a sense of just how influential she's been uh, when I talk to these these younger female authors. Elizabeth's name is the one that comes up again and again and again. And I, I don't think she's ever truly believes me when I tell her that. But Elizabeth, damn it, I'm telling you. <laughs> um, let's see who else. Uh, Cynthia Paleo. I'm really digging her stuff. Um, really digging her stuff. Uh, uh, v Castro. I like her stuff a lot. Um and Linda Addison, the OG, uh, my dear friend, uh, my my one writer friend who I swear my father will leave my mother for. Um, true story. I, I, at my wedding, uh, my dad just developed this huge crush on Linda Addison. And it was the funniest goddamn thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, he still asks about her, you know. And Linda teases me every time I see her. How's your dad doing? Is he single yet? You know. Um, you know, Linda. Linda's a poet, and and not everybody is into poetry. But if you're not into poetry, I still encourage you to to try her short fiction out. Um, you know, uh, so that there's some suggestions. Nice, and I know you know you were one of the big name blurbs on uh, the We Are Wolves anthology. How oh, good? Book. How so, good so was good. Uh, Cena Palayo's opening story, The Black Wallpaper? Yeah. What a yeah. that. That's how you kick things off. <laughs> like I like I said, she is she is one to watch, definitely. Mm. 
Children Definitely. of Chicago comes out next month. Yep. So Pat, while you're on it, uh, who are who are some women authors you'd throw out there? Uh, you know, new to me, but Natalie Edwards, she does crime. That's the name she uses for that. T.C. Parker is her horror name. Um, not because she's on right now. Cassie has three stories that are published. It, it's been a little bit longer than a few months, but yeah, she's... Thank you. I, I compare her Woo! to... I compare her closest to who I've read, Laurel Hightower, because they both are heavily uh, emotionally driven. Um, their stories... And they are gut punchers. Laurel uh, Hightower, she's pretty much getting a lot of recognition. Brian named a lot that I like. V V Castro has, and I've told her she's one of my favorite authors that um, of the recent two years I've been diving into this scene. Uh, I like Cena. I have her book on um, a pre-order. Um, I hate this. I wish I wrote down a list. It's like I feel <laughs> I feel pressure. But uh, who else? Gemma is really good. Um, Gen- <laughs> I held up Jeff Strand's pressure as he said that. <laughs> um, for audio listeners, <laughs> I you know what, man? Don't do this to me again. I can't that's a, you know what? That's, that's a pretty good list. That's a pretty solid list. I felt like it was yeah. a cop-out where it was like, ah, Brian's list. <laughs> Cassie, what about you? Who do people need to be reading? Um, so I'm going to go with Aaliyah Whiteley, who she, a lot of her stuff is like kind of horror-y, like body horror, but also like very sci-fi. Um, and I only just started reading her recently and I really like her. So that's why she's like very fresh in my mind. She has a couple of books coming out this year, actually. So I'm very, very excited about those. Um, and then just some go-to favorites who I think people should always read are, um, Sarah Tantlinger. She writes poetry and she had a novella out. She's amazing. Like her, she's so good with words. It's like stomach turning but in a beautiful way which i know sounds weird but it's it's she's so good um and then Haley piper who i know we all really oh yeah loved yeah, worms yeah. when we talked about that one so yeah. those are some that i would really really recommend i got a few more actually sonora taylor very good i love and, sonora yeah she's a very nice person too and the there's actually one more uh jennifer Sousey. i'm just reading her uh book coming out with silver shamrock it's called clementine's awakening it's neat it's like southern horror um i'm only in the beginning, so I don't even know how to describe it, but it it's pulling me into it. Uh, Brennan, why don't you take us away to the next, uh, what is it, the next uh, question. Wait, well, before you I, do I that. mean, I, I want to oh, throw sorry. some in, I, too. Come on, I, man. I was like, he didn't even get <laughs> I totally chance, forgot. Pat, I totally forgot. My <laughs> mistake. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I knew what I was doing throwing it to Cassie. I There was 100% certainty that Cassie was going to throw uh, uh, Haley Piper in there. But I've got to bring Haley back because I I got a chance to start her short story collection that comes out in May, Unfortunate Elements of My Anatomy. <gasps> and I, I mean, I, I've, I'm going to be talking about this for the next few months, but it is I'm only two stories in and it's killer. I read one today uh, called The Law of Conservation of Death, and it is probably the hardest hitting short story I've read in a while. And that, you know even down to and including that We Are Wolves anthology. Um, I think people are really going to love that story. I certainly do. Um, I got to throw out Laurel Hightower in there. Um, We kind of tangentially threw her in there. Uh, Jessica Guest, definitely, for Cirque Berserk. Um, Nico Bell, and not just because she put out a book that I'm in, but also (laughs) because she is, you know, a killer rewinder die author. 
Um, and oh, let's see. Oh my gosh, there's some Sisters of Slaughter. You got to throw out the Sisters of Slaughter. Love me yeah. the Sisters of Slaughter. Yeah, yeah I yeah. uh, I gotta tell you, I've had a lot of neat moments in this industry, uh, but one of my favorite memories uh, is when when Serial Box tapped me to be the showrunner for Silverwood, and they're like, "You get to pick the team." And uh, I was like, all right, I want the Sisters of Slaughter. And I approached them about it. And they just, they freaked out. They freaked out. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, the the company wanted to bring us all to, to New York City, of course, for the, the writer's retreat. And, uh, you know, they, they couldn't travel because um, they, they got kids and stuff. So I, I convinced the company to send us to Arizona, to the Sisters of Slaughter hometown instead. And they oh, put us shit. up in an Airbnb for a week. But... Uh, when I got there to the Airbnb the first morning, Kozanuski, he pulls me aside and he says, uh, now I'm going to warn you, they're really nervous to meet you. <laughs> and it just, they were vibrating with this, this energy. And it's just, I've never forgotten that morning. It was, it was for the first time, I think I probably understood how Ketchum or Lehman or Lansdale or Scow or Skip or some of these other guys felt when we would first ap- approach them that way. Um, you know, it, 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 it was a neat moment. Yes, yes, definitely the Sisters of Slaughter. And I, I also want to mention, you know, when Women in Horror Month comes around every year, people make these lists. And, you know, Mary wrote a great essay about the list this week. One thing we tend to forget when making these lists um, is – how many women are involved in the publishing aspect of this business? So I would like to give a, a shout out to C.V. Hunt yep. at Grindhouse Press and Rose O'Keefe uh, at Deadite and Eraserhead. I mean, you know, Rose has been doing this. She's been publishing as long as I've been writing. Oh, wow. um, you know, that that's a that's a, a long, long career. Uh, and, and, you know, she's had enormous success at it. So uh, a shout out to both of them. You know, they're, they're, they're female owned presses. And Samantha Koyesnik, Off Limits Press, man. They are yes. putting up so many good books. And uh, I'm going to throw in Carmen Wells. That's her editor. She's a fantastic editor, man. Yep. And in that same vein, we got to throw out Jill Girardi um, doing yes. those uh, Candisha anthologies. And Cena too. Cena also has Burial Day books. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Wow. That's awesome. I hope whoever's taking notes goes and buys these books. Tell them. Tell them. Uh, the crew sent you. Don't. It's <laughs> trying to make a joke. That wasn't funny. Don't. Brian, don't uh, specify what crew or anything. <laughs> two live crew. Right. With me. <laughs> Motley crew sent me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, now, uh, you guys want to go real quick over what we're currently reading and, uh, wrap it up. Yeah. We've taken, we've taken up almost two hours of your time, man. I am, uh, currently reading. Oh, I don't have it up here. Um, where the hell is it? Oh, <laughs> not so currently. Yeah, here it is. <laughs> I, I literally just finished it today. Rereading, uh, the rum diary. By mm. Hunter S. Thompson. It's my favorite non-horror novel. Mm. Uh, I reread it once a year. Um, and the other thing I'm reading is uh, Wendy's Button Box by, oh. by Stephen King and, and Richard Chismar. 
Um, this is one of two copies I have in the house. This one has notes being written in the margins. I can't tell you why I'm writing notes in the margins. <laughs> Fucking tease. Uh, I will point out that it... Uh, you know, we talked earlier about I've been rereading a lot of uh, Castle Rock stuff set in the 70s and 80s. That happens to be a Castle Rock book set in the 70s and 80s. So I, I don't know what the correlation is there, but <laughs> I don't know why I'm writing notes in the margins. I'm just trying to but, do the mental math to figure this out. This is like a mystery and all the sleuths listening right now are going to be like rubbing their hands together about to dive in. <laughs> what was what was great is we can't announce anything. We can't talk about anything. OK, but, uh, you know, I made I made a tweet late last year about uh, visiting Castle Rock for the day. Now, obviously, I know what I'm talking about, but the public doesn't, um, you know, but then Steve retweets it and it goes viral. And <laughs> you want to talk about the email blowing up. Jesus Christ. <laughs> what are you working on? Are you going to be the new showrunner on Castle Rock? You know, are, what, are you are you writing uh, the next Wendy book? Are you? The, uh, uh, I can't tell you. You're actually in Maine right now? (laughs) Are you literally in Maine right now? Yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) I got those too. I got my father texts me. He's like, Are you in Maine? (laughs) Like, no, I'm here at home. Why? Well, I don't know. Your mom's freaking out about something on Twitter. (laughs) That that's that's fantastic. Um, Cassie, what are you currently reading? Uh, so right now I'm actually we already talked about it a little bit, but I'm reading We Are Wolves because I got my physical copy in and I was saving to get that in. Um, so I've been working my way through that one. I was really bad last year reading short story collections for some reason and anthologies. Like it was just hard for me to get myself into them. So I made a goal this year that I'm going to read like a story every day or every other day from at least one of my collections or anthologies so that I can start like working through them. Um, and that one is just so good that I kept like I'm on, I think, like the fifth or sixth story now. And each one, I just want to keep reading it. So I'm like, OK, maybe I'll do two stories today and maybe I'll do three. Um, and then besides that, I'm reading. Uh, I got an art copy of Shelter for the Damned by Mike Thorne. Um, and I think that one's out by Journal Stone, I believe it is. Yeah. Um, and I think it's next month if I'm remembering right, which I didn't write it down. So I might not be. But I think it's next month if my blog experience is telling me anything um and that one's really good so far i'm not super far into it but uh, i read it a little bit before bed and then i had well that was the night that i started that i had the weird dream about my teeth coming out so i don't know if i was just like in a creepy headspace because i read a spooky book yeah it was y'all man i woke up and i was like shaking and rich is like are you okay and i was like my teeth my teeth and he's like what's wrong and i was like my teeth were falling out in my dream like i could feel them coming out but one of them was still attached and it hurt and he's like oh god like what what happened and i was like i went to the dentist but they resigned when i got there (laughs) and i just it was a mess (laughs) and like the weirdest part of that i mean because the whole thing's weird but they, didn't, they weren't even there to resign. They left a note, like a letter, on letterhead from the dentist's office on the thing. And he's like, could you read that in your dream? And I was like, it had the word dentist on it. And the lady's name was Julia. And he's like giving me weird looks. And he's like, do you know a dentist named Julia? And I'm like, no, my teeth, man. My teeth are the important part here. Like, oh, okay. Sorry, that was a little part. Not what I'm reading, is but your, just what I'm is dreaming. Is your dentist named Crentist? <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe that's uh, why he went into that field. You never know. <laughs> Were you in New York for an unreasonable amount of time when you should have uh, been at work? <laughs> yeah, wasn't he doing something nice too? Oh no, that one was the one where he was doing something shady behind his back, right? Uh, he was doing something for his lover, Angela. 
Is that the one where he was going, or was that the one where he's talking to Jan trying to get Michael's job? Oh shit, you're right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. Okay. Anyway, so that's what I'm reading, guys. Next. <laughs> uh, which in one, well, you just said it's hard. It's you know, someone should have said that's what she said. That would have been perfect. I talked too right. fast. You missed it. <laughs> yeah, you do talk faster than the average person. Brandon, what are you reading? So, Cassie, I'm kind of doing. I'm I'm trying to do the same thing as you and read a little bit more uh, short stuff. And my, I, I'm doing that because I'm finding that every time I sit down to write something short, it ends up being longer than I want it to be. And I wanna, I wanna just kind of study that stuff and make sure that I'm 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 reading enough short stuff to uh, take it in a little bit better this year. And unfortunately, that's backfiring because, like I said, I'm reading that Haley Piper question. Um, question collection and getting to the end of each story and saying well shit i can't do that um <laughs> she she really is phenomenal with the short fiction um but beyond that i'm reading um the searching dead by ramsey campbell i'm about halfway through that um and i think this is only the second book i've read by him but the the man does atmosphere well Pat, i would say you? yeah i would i would say uh out of out of living authors he's he's the master he's he, he is uh, the the og at atmosphere yeah um i'm about halfway through alan baxter's the gulp it's it's pretty cool uh but we'll talk about that next week um ramsey campbell's the searching dead audio listeners can't see the covers watch the youtube version <laughs> <laughs> next month i'm gonna be on the pike cast which is now when i plan to talk about it <laughs> okay okay fair you're actually i out. i have a i have a question go ahead just in case patrick gets sidetracked again cassie if <laughs> i was say film director mike lombardo and, and a big christopher pike can pike fan is there a is there a podcast perhaps i could listen to 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 you know, really celebrate that fandom. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I can think of one, actually, a podcast about Christopher Pike, completely dedicated <laughs> to his books with each of the episodes. And I'm me here today. One of Pat's close friends is one of the hosts of that podcast. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> what a coincidence. <laughs> what if Mike Lombardo wanted to be on your show, just like Sean Cosby uh, just randomly said he wants to be on your show? What, what? How would that work out? No, just contact us. We've got we've got a lot of <laughs> a lot of awesome people, man. You got anybody you know here, not here, alive, like maybe some ghost sort of things we can have going on too, some sort of channeling. We have actually um one of our most I don't want to say biggest because some of the authors we've talked to so far like I've been fangirling and was like shaking because I was so nervous about talking to them for the fight cast but we have Grady Hendrix coming on which I know you two know but that's we awesome. haven't really super announced it like for the podcast yet um so that's and he you know he's super into like the covers and everything too so that's going to be really cool um yeah, anybody who wants to come on let me know also don't forget about me like <clears throat> some people Pat I planned to talk about you. Sorry. <laughs> I'm really excited for you to be on the show. <laughs> Thank you. So I'm going to be reading The the uh, Eternal Enemy uh, by Christopher Pike for that random podcast. And then the other one for our new show with me, Brennan, and uh, Ken McKinley. Uh, I'm Unburying the Dead, which, Brian, we will be talking about your book, Ghoul. Well, we already talked about it. And uh, at one point, Ken talks about how we kiss your ass, and I think he says, don't get a big head, or, I don't know, he talks shit, you know, crazy Irish <laughs> bastard. 
But uh, for... Fuck it. I'll just say, for the third episode, we are reading Fear by Ronald Kelly. It's a big bastard of a book. Zebra classic. Uh, it's a lot of... It, it's going to dive into a lot of horror that me and Brennan aren't familiar with, but I'm sure you are, Brian. So it'll be a lot of uh, older stuff that we are going to experience. Um, you know what? Do you want an exclusive for your YouTube viewers? Fuck yeah. Okay. So <laughs> the only way, audio listeners, to see this is to go on YouTube. Go on the internets! <laughs> As Johnny Lawrence says in Cobra Kai. I don't know if it'll show up or not, but can you see that? Oh, that's nice. That's real wow. pretty. That is a signed movie poster. Got this at Sundance. Signed by all the cast and then my dumbass. <laughs> uh, there are three of those in existence. I own one. Nolan Gould from Modern Family owns one, and I think uh, the producer owns one. Actually, fourth, because the director has one as well. Uh, Thank you. That's so, a gorgeous po- poster. Yeah. So there you Can go. Can I just That's mention cool. that I love this room you have, like, with all yeah. of your stuff? Like, it is so freaking cool. It's like, like a shrine to Brian. Like yeah, but it's, it's his room. I love it. <laughs> well, it's, you know, honestly, um, I keep three copies of everything I've ever written. One for each of my sons and one for them to flip on eBay when I'm dead and pay for the funeral. Oh. <laughs> um, but it, you know, as, as you notice, there, there's book covers, original art, photos of me with friends, and of course, all my books. And let's let's swing it back to Gabino. Let's end with how we started with, you know, Gabino, why do I have to ruin everything? On the days when I'm being asked that, on the days when, you know, the internet has decided that I'm public enemy number one, um, on the days when, like Cassie, I'm stuck with what comes after the, <laughs> all I got to do is turn in any direction in this room. And and I turn and I look and I say, you know what? Fuck you. I'm Brian Keene. And I get right back to it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Brian fucking Keene. This this room is my therapy. <laughs> that's that's awesome. I mean that isn't that really kind of what every writer wants? Just yeah, you know, physical evidence that you did something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like Brennan was talking about, an end of the road. You know, Hunter S. Thompson's childhood home, and nobody in town knew who he was. Uh, that's crazy. You know, I I. I would certainly like people to be reading my books when I'm gone. You know, I, I think we all do. Uh, so, yeah, you know, yeah, you want you want to be remembered for for what you put out there into the world. Absolutely. Now, Brennan, Cassie, Brian, is there anything any of you want to talk about before we ask our last question, which is where can people follow you? But before that, does anyone well, have? You already kind of asked it, so. <laughs> I'm not very good at this. This is the 63rd episode we've recorded. I'm a dumbass too. We'll get it. I don't have any questions. Now, Brian, you got anything else? Anything that you want to say? Fuck you guys. See you later. No, I, I, I don't want to say fuck you guys. See you later. I, I just want to say much love to everybody. Uh, I don't care who you are. 2020 was tough. Um, and I suspect 2021 is going to be even tougher. Um, you know, uh, I, there's no platitude I can offer that will make it any better. Uh, 
but I'll offer it anyway. Hang in there. And, you know, if you need to take a break from reality, you know, read a book. There's no shame in that. There's no shame in checking out for a while and, and losing yourself in, in some entertainment. Um, you know, other than that, I'll, I would remind folks, End of the Road, out now in paperback and on Kindle, number one bestseller, uh, and Sympathy for the Devil, uh, out of print since 2010, back in a new edition in paperback and uh, Kindle as well. Nice. Uh, I Yeah, I got to check out Sympathy for the Devil. That cover looks really neat. Um, where can people follow you? Uh, I'm easy to find. BrianKeen.com. Uh, Brian Keen on Twitter. Uh, Brian Keen on YouTube. Um, I have a Facebook page. I don't run it. Uh, it it's it's uh, run by my team. Um, but if you talk to me on Twitter, you can be assured it's me talking back to you. Um, you know, and, and you know, I... I I prefer Twitter. I prefer Twitter over email. I prefer Twitter over over text messages. If you want to ask me something, ask me on Twitter. It's that easy, you know? Hmm. Well, that's fair. For all those that are new to the show, thank you for joining. Uh, we are now a part of a, a podcast network. It's brand new. It's through Ken McKinley, Silver Shamrock, uh, called Silver Shamrock Horrorcast. Uh, for those that are looking for the upcoming shows after Brian's, the week after that will be with Alan Baxter, followed by, and please correct me, Brian, if I'm wrong, because I feel like you know this last name, Don Daria. Did I say yep. that right? Yep. Followed by Larry Barron, and the rest will be on Twitter, because that's my go-to uh, social media, too. So stay tuned for that. That's Cast- a hell of a lineup. Um, and we got Ramsey Campbell, so I don't know what the fuck we did, but I, I uh, <laughs> and we got Joe Lansdale with Sean Cosby, with Gabino, and Cena Palio on a roundtable, so I'm just going to shut the hell up and let Brennan talk. <laughs> it's going to be a hell of a January, man. <laughs> um, Cassie, thank you for joining us again. You always make everything better and rainbowed colored, so appreciate your time, Brennan. Thank you, sir. And Brian... Uh, you are a direct influence on me in the show, so thank you sincerely for allowing us to have two hours of your time. Thank you, guys. It was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. And uh, hopefully come back sometime soon. Everybody, stay tuned for what's to come. This is just the beginning for Season 2. Thank you. Deadhead space.